Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Joining Arun and myself today is Runit Gose, a well-known figure in tech and fintech, and I would say one that does not need an introduction. If you need to, just go ahead to LinkedIn, Twitter, or any other social media and read up on one of the many reports from City, and then you'll know who Runit is. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, so you've been in City for 25 years. I actually didn't know it was that long until we looked it up. Um, <laughs> that is quite a journey. And on top of that, you're an advisory board member for Global Impact FinTech Forum, CFTE, and a few others. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got there, the highlights across these 25 years? What are some of the milestones uh, that you have had in your career? Sure. Um, so you kind of have to wind back to this is the mid 1990s. It's a long time ago. And um, I was working in Parliament at the time in London. Uh, I just come out of college. Um, I was one year out of college. And I was still trying to work out what I wanted to do with my with my career. I knew I was interested in markets, uh, financial markets, uh, policy issues, um, economics, politics, history. Those those are kind of my interests at the time. Um, but there was a very prosaic uh, issue as well, which was uh, I needed to pay rent. Uh, I was living with my mom. And um, I, was, I had this fantastic job working at the House of Commons, working for a former prime minister of the UK, but it didn't pay very much. And we were immigrants to the UK. So, you know, very happy with the opportunity that the UK gave us. But we were kind of not quite fresh off the boat, but, you know, off a plane, I guess. So I needed to make money. And at the time, London was booming. And it was that kind of almost... When you look back on it, kind of golden era, you could say London, London is still a fantastic, amazing city. Um, has been for hundreds of years, uh, a world city, still an amazing city. But there was a period, a brief moment at the end of the 20th century, start of the 21st century, you could put London, New York in the same breath, in my view. You, you can't anymore. Um, maybe you can't put anyone in the same breath as New York anymore. It's all decentralized anyway. Uh, there's excitement happening everywhere in the world, not just in big, big metropolitan hubs. And what was really powering London uh, was, was finance. Um, yeah, sure. Also music, fashion, etc. But I didn't think I had that much to add to the music industry. Whereas finance, I thought this is, you know, this is about, um, this is about the future. This is about how things work. This is about the machine that makes the world go around. And London was very good at it, and I happened to be there. And so from my interest in economics and policy, I kind of stumbled into the world of money and finance, talked myself into a job at what was a predecessor firm to City. So this was, again, I'm going to put a date on it. It's kind of mid-late 1990s. I was, um, I'd applied for a job randomly. Um, I was going to do my business school interview. And the day before my business school interview, I got a job offer from Salomon Brothers. And I was like, well, I'm taking it. And yeah, I don't think that business school is accepting me back ever again. Uh, it's probably too late anyway, but uh, 
So I didn't show up for my interview, took the job, and the rest was history. Fast forward a few years, I began to visit Sweden a lot because I was the youngest kid on the team. Uh, I was working in research. Uh, research is a misnomer. Um, research in an investment bank is basically trying to predict, um, sometimes usually fail to predict, but it's trying to predict asset prices. And it's trying to understand or help the user, so typically the investor or other users, understand how that asset works. And my speciality was financial companies. Uh, but anyway, I was put on, a, put, on a, put on a plane and sent to Stockholm in the late 90s because I was the youngest kid on the team and Sweden was a small place back then. Today it's much more relevant economically and financially than it used to be 25 years ago because I've had a great 25 years. And anyhow, I became the Scandi expert. And it just so happened Scandi became this home of tech and fintech. So one of the big areas of fintech in the kind of European time zone, you say London, uh, Stockholm, maybe nowadays you throw in Berlin and Paris as well. And obviously Tel Aviv, depending on where you're putting Tel Aviv, Middle East, Europe, America, I don't know, but, um, you know, it was the kind of, you know, by per capita, I think only Tel Aviv punches above Stockholm's weight. I'm obviously leaving the valley out of this. The valley's in its own little kind of whatever. But um, Stockholm was this amazing um, tech and fintech hub. And it's such a small place that I got to meet a lot of these founders early. A lot of these companies early uh, didn't do much with it. But many of the companies that went on to become household names, like the, the Klanas of the world, um, I met years ago. Then the... Then the kind of fast forward uh, to they said the last 10 years, um, I began looking a lot at what was happening in greater China through the lens of Hong Kong specifically. And I became fascinated by how initially in consumer finance or consumer fintech, the Chinese were reinventing money, uh, reinventing financial services uh, in a way that the Western world had done back in the 60s and 70s. When you think about the basic form factors, um, no, I won't, I won't wave a credit card at you because I've revealed too much information, but if I took out my credit card from my leather wallet, which I rarely use, and wave it to you, that's been the standard form factor, right, of personal finance for decades now around the world. That came out of the US, well, US slash the UK. Just like ATMs came out of the US and the UK. Um, I think the Americans will came claim credit cards was, were theirs. The Brits could say ATMs might be theirs, but it was an Anglosphere. It was an Anglo-American you know, driven thing. And as the middle classes grew, particularly in America, the form factors that developed to serve the American middle class became the global standard for the next 50 years. And so there I was in China, um, or really through Hong Kong, and a little bit through Shanghai and Pudong, and then later Hangzhou and other places, looking at this going, wow, this is like history being made. This is like being there when that, you know, those first credit cards were being mailed out in California and wherever. This is happening now. It's not the Western seaboard of the US, it's the Eastern seaboard of China. And so I got really interested in initially consumer fintech, um, and then I probably credit Hong Kong for my on and off interest in crypto and digital, or what we call in polite company, digital assets. I can't say crypto. Digital assets. Uh, 
Um, it was really through Hong Kong because I was doing these meetings um, in 2015, 16, and hundreds of clients were showing up. And I'd do these webinars, and thousands of both clients and colleagues would dial in. And I'm like, oh, okay. Normally about 15 people dial in, or if you're lucky, 50, and we're getting thousands dial in. There's something going on here. This is interesting. And so those are kind of some of the drivers, if you like, London, Stockholm, Hong Kong, that got mentioned. Now I happen to be living in Dubai, but that's another story. That's great. And, and you kind of have paused that answer at the right, right place, kind of takes us very well into the next question, Ronit, because you lead, um, you lead Future of Finance at City. And you kind of dropped a few keywords in your previous answer around decentralization, future of money, and you probably even uh, miss said cryptos when you said that. Um, you clearly what you're doing today has a lot of overlap with digital assets, and um, I would love to hear from you in terms of what experiments and what you see as a future of digital assets, particularly in the institutional space, but also what kind of experiments, if you can uh, share with us, are happening, not just within city, but broadly within the uh, financial services ecosystem. Totally, totally. So let's, let's frame the answer to your question more broadly. And everything I'm going to say in answer to your question, you should read as applicable to the banking industry, particularly American uh, headquartered or UK headquartered international banks. Um, so digital assets of crypto aren't the solution to every problem, but they could be uh, the solution to certain problems uh, or certain use. There are certain use cases. And so all, all innovations, and we've been through with crypto cycle since obviously 09, um, booms and busts during the 2010s, and again now in the early 2020s. Um, all innovation cycles come with manias, speculative froth, um, bubbles, and it's not unique to crypto. Or like I was on a panel the other day talking about the metaverse, and people were saying, "Ah, oh, but there's so much fraud in crypto, and the metaverse could just be hype and." And I was like, guys, you should read the history of like 19th century railways or 16th, 17th century colonial adventures from Scotland or France or wherever else. There were, there's been so much hype, speculation, driving any new innovation. Now, crypto has an extra layer on top of that because, you know, almost inherent in, in terms of the main use case so far that's found product market fit in the blockchain world has been cryptocurrencies and financial speculation. We're obviously very keen um, sort of in both in the TradFi space and also in the kind of overlap of TradFi and crypto to look at real world use cases. But a lot of this is likely driven by speculation. And in some ways, there's nothing wrong with that because speculation is like the kind of, you know, it's like the midwife or the whatever you want to call it, uh, facilitator of um, more boring things to come. Now, one of the more boring things that big banks look at digital assets as a possible solution. Um, 
digitization of the back office of processes has been happening for a while. But there are certain things that still work very slowly because of existing infrastructure. And there are certain parts of the business that are just um, not accessible um, in an efficient way, at a scale way. So think about, think about um, pre-IPO equity. So to, you know, to do transactions, if you're, if you're doing angel investing, if, if your audience has ever done an angel investor, if you're in the US, you're lucky. If you're in the US, you're lucky. There are platforms via which make it really easy uh, to make do angel investing. If you're not in the US, it's really painful to invest in the equity, the, just the original check, sending that original check to, an, to, a, to, an, to a seed investment company. Oh, it can be like, it can take weeks out of your life, uh, particularly if it involves Europe or Africa, or the Middle East or India, anything that's not US registered or US facilitated. Um, I remember doing a transaction, a really small check in a company in Western Europe. And I spent literally in retrospect, probably a day, day and a half of my life doing paperwork. If I'd known how much it would take into the time, I wouldn't have touched it. Now that's just the original part of the trend. And then once you've done it, it's locked in. You can't do anything with it. I mean, yes, you can have secondary sales. And again, if you're not on this platform, it's super hard. But one of the one of the possible one of the possibilities of digital assets is it creates liquidity where liquidity doesn't exist right now. So pre-IPO uh, equity or private equity, digital private bonds is another really good one. So I so one more use case is taking existing assets, like paper-based assets that exist in the financial world putting it on chain, which then makes it more liquid and more fractionable. Um, then there's another area, which is starting with completely digital native assets that we then put on chain. So if you're doing, I don't know, trade finance or supply chain finance, let's just start with the document, uh, the contract, the documentation being on chain. Now, if that can happen again, you can just create more efficiency. So those are some of the, those are some of the use cases that banks generic are looking at. Um, so capital markets, um, supply chain finance, trade finance, and there are lots of examples just to Google it. Um, then there's a separate use case for the banks, but like a number three use case, which is servicing the crypto uh, asset world. Um, as in, ultimately, banks exist in the space between regulation, clients, and technology. And technology has moved forward and created this kind of asset class, whatever you want to call it, digital assets, crypto. Clients are saying, hey, you do a lot of our financial services for us anyway. I'm now going to go to this new digital asset company. They might be great, but I do 98% of my business with you, big bank, headquartered in wherever you are, San Francisco, North Carolina, New York, wherever. London, Amsterdam, Paris. Why don't you deal with this? Because why do I have to give this 2% of my business here when 19? So this is kind of incoming client push that's saying, hey, it's, it's okay, it's smaller than a year ago. A year ago, it was 3 trillion. Now it's sub 1 trillion, but it's still not zero. Um, 1 trillion in the context of TradFi is actually quite a small number. So <laughs> I know in the normal world, it sounds like that's a lot of money, but 1 trillion is, that's, yeah, I mean, compared to global stock markets and bond markets, a small number. So it'll get attention, but it's not in itself 
going to change TradFi overnight. Um, but this is kind of so this third use case is basically just dealing with crypto assets, and, um, sort of servicing client demand. Technology clients, but this is other part of the like the triangle, which is regulation, and that's the challenge because. Uh, obviously, in the U.S., there's um, no clear regulatory framework right now. There's been regulation uh, through enforcement action by various agencies, uh, which, if you're not American or work for an American company, can be very confusing. There's so many of these agencies. Um, in Europe, there's a proposal called MICA that's going through, should be implemented in the next 12 months, maybe latest 15 months, but it's it's coming, but at the moment, most jurisdictions, most big jurisdictions don't have a clear rule book how to deal with these assets. There are jurisdictions like Abu Dhabi down the road from me, ADGMs had a rule book for many years, um, Singapore, Switzerland, you know, they have probably gone further. Now, Dubai is also on the case. They've gone further than the bigger countries, but the bigger countries or regions, they don't have a clear rule book. And that's the biggest challenge for large institutions or in the US call the federal banks, uh, money center banks. It's, it's really hard for these institutions to deal with digital assets until you get a rule book in place. I just want to double click into that uh, point, uh, Ronit, if I, if I may. Uh, you, you spoke about regulation in central banks and some of the jurisdictions you mentioned are starting to experiment and have been experimenting within the central bank digital currency space. Um, there are different models that that uh, these these uh, centralized entities are looking to do, take uh, to kind of get the CBDC uh, construct out. Um, what role do you think banks would play in a post CBDC world? Is, is that is that something that you can shed some light on? Oh, um, so Inherent in that question is an assumption that we're going to end up in a CBDC world. And that's a really interesting assumption. Um, there's definitely, so just a level set, CBDC, central bank digital currencies, this, this is programmable money. So like, it doesn't have to be blockchain based, but let's just call it blockchain based money, except issued, the value is issued by or determined by the sovereign, so the central bank or the state. So that's CBDC. Um, CBDCs are in pilot and quite extensive in pilot in China. Uh, they're live in Nigeria with the E-Naira in the Bahamas with the sand dollar and a few other places. And there are some reasons why CBDCs are happening in those countries. Um, in, in, in Nigeria, for example, the e-Naira has been piloted because within the Central Bank of Nigeria, within CBN, there are some pretty smart people who want to be on top of emerging technology trends. Um, the U.S. still doesn't have real-time payments, right? If I'm correct, correct me if I'm wrong. It's a cheap shot that I'm taking here, but uh, I, I think the U.S. Hey, it's nicely done. Yeah, no, we don't have it just yet. It's, yeah. So Fed's it's coming. <laughs> Fed whatever, Fed now or Fed Live or Fed, Fed this now. is coming, right? Yeah. Now. And obviously, if you if you happen to bank with a big bank, 
you can move money between two big banks, real time or close to real time, but it's not nationwide. Nigeria, NIBS, N-I-B-B-S, NIBS, I visited NIBS in 2019 in Lagos, um, and they'd already had real time payments for years. And this is in 2019. I can't remember how many, I should have looked this up before I came on this recording, but uh, I think Nigeria's had real time payments for like eight, 10 years. I'm I, Fact that check, fact check that, because that could be wrong, but it's, it's more than six, seven years. And it's amazing because in, in many other ways, the infrastructure in the country is, you know, less than, first of all, let's put it that way, yet they've got real-time payments. So in a way, it's not surprising when you know the history of technology in Nigerian banking or institutions in, in the finance world that they're trying out the CBDC because they've actually got quite a, quite a history, a pedigree in some institutions of some really talented people. Now, some of these talented people go to the US or the UK and have amazing careers as well. Uh, the diaspora, uh, super talented from Nigeria. Now, what's happened in Nigeria in the last few years is that there's been a lot of fintechs that have emerged and uh, there's been a lot of interest from users for um, using cryptocurrencies uh, as a payment tool because international payments basically is broken or it's very difficult. It's not like moving money London to New York or Dubai to London or Dubai to New York. I can click a button and through the existing boring old correspondent banking system, my money moves. Not real time, but it moves pretty fast. Um, getting money in and out of Nigeria, uh, both the transaction costs, let alone the kind of the uh, the caps on FX, it's, it's, it's super hard. So cryptocurrencies has grown as a use case because it's a product market fit for cryptocurrencies. And so the central bank is looking at this going, well, people are using this technology, so let's let's use it as well. And we've got a history of now Enira up to the last few weeks, people the standard response would have been, ah, no one's interested. It's being forced down the popular it's it's top down, it's not bottom up. Whereas the adoption of cryptocurrencies and the adoption of some of these fintechs have been bottom up. Um, it'll be interesting to see if that changes in the next few months because this is being now devolved into the banking sector. And so the banks are going to own, um, like you don't, you won't onboard on via some kind of centralized government website anymore. So the banks will own this. Um, as the banks and maybe the fintechs start getting involved, could the CBDC narrative change? Up to now, the eNaira has been seen as a very niche, uh, interesting, but not scaled up experiment. So we're going to watch this space. Same in, same in China. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a huge volume being done, but when you look at it as a percentage of overall volumes. The, the, I think the euphemism used in China by policymakers is financial inclusion for CBDCs. Now, I'm not going to spell it out, but we all know what that means, right? So if someone else can spell it out what that means. But uh, anyway, take the story back to Europe and the US, which I guess the main discussion is going to be, will CBDCs happen in Europe and the US? So up till 2015, average central banker in Western Europe or North America wasn't particularly into CBDCs. If they liked the idea of CBDCs, they were kind of intellectually curious because it's money, it's technology, but they weren't one sort of central bank senior meeting saying, we need to do CBDCs. And then, um, Facebook happened, uh, Libra to be specific happened. 
And I remember the Libra white paper was launched. I was in Geneva, which is where the Libra office is supposed to be. And we kind of knew from the media, right? Libra was coming. And I remember when it went out, the white paper, and I was like, wow, this is exciting. We you know, read the white paper, uh, wrote a report about the white paper. And then I even went to visit their offices. There weren't any offices of Libra. They were, they were subletting a PayPal office and a shared services office in a kind of in the center of Geneva. It was kind of super interesting. And I was like, okay, there's no office here, but anyway, there's a white paper. Um, they just written a white paper and they'd done some software development. But what they hadn't done was they hadn't squared, yeah, they hadn't lined up the regulators. So obviously the regulators and policymakers went bananas. And one of the sort of side effects of that was um, there was a real acceleration. Uh, this is obviously my personal view. Uh, other people have different views on this, but I think that really lit the touch paper between PBOC and this fierce spread by some commentators that we're entering a digital space race. What I mean, maybe we are, but it's just bonkers that, yes, there's always going to be state competition and intrastate competition, but the idea that if China does a PBOC, you know, PBOC does a, or the Chinese authorities do a CBDC, that Europe needs to do one just because China is doing one. I mean, it's, no, I mean, that's just, it's kind of, in my view, nonsense. Um, the US dollar isn't going to lose its apex status tomorrow. One day, if nothing lasts forever, I mean, I don't know when it will be, one day, probably after my career, uh, who knows when, but the US dollar won't be an apex currency because, you know, nothing lasts forever. But the idea that this, you know, this thing called a CBDC or a Bitcoin or a cryptocurrency, which, I, by the way, all of the things I'm super interested in intellectually and also, you know, has some money tied up in all those things, at least in the non-CBDC part, the idea that's going to replace the dollar is just whatever. Anyway, um, so the Europeans are looking at this going, oh, Mark Zuckerberg wants his own currency. We need to accelerate CBDC. And so all of this blah, blah goes on in Europe. And then the Americans or some people in Capitol Hill, um, some people in central bank circles are looking at it. Whoa, what are the Europeans doing? And this is like very long kind of train of awkward Chinese whispers going on. But it's like something weird going on here. Where everyone's looking at everyone else going, what are they doing? And actually, no one is actually doing that much, which is the weirdest thing. So it's, it's like, it's not like, you know, uh, there's that much volume happening and there's a percentage of transactions in China and CBDC. But everyone's looking at each other going, we need to do something. And then suddenly around 2017, 18, 19, complete change. I mean, every central bank in the world is writing CBDC papers, BIS is all over this and... And we ended up writing a report in was it 2021 called The Future of Money, which has at least half of the reports, about I don't know, 60, 70 pages, all about CBDCs. So, yeah, we spent a year going really deep into CBDCs for our sins. Um, but what does a post-CBDC world look like? I don't really think there's going to be a post-CBDC world. CBDCs might exist, and I say might rather than will, and you all use some kind of digital wallet, right? Apple Pay, Google Pay, Samsung Pay, whatever Pay, My Pay, You Pay, This Pay, That Pay. In that digital wallet today, the payment credentials are typically a Visa, MasterCard, or if you're in China, Ant or WeChat or whatever. That digital wallet could well hold an official token where the value is set by the central bank, i.e. a CBDC. 
it'll probably be distributed, but it'll be a two-tier system. It'll probably be distributed by a bank. Now the question is, will it sit in a bank wallet? Will it sit in a Visa wallet? Um, another company's wallet? Uh, an Apple wallet? Who knows? Um, so it'll be interesting. I mean, that creates, I mean, that creates opportunity and risk where the bank could start losing um, control of the kind of consumer wallet. Um, because at the moment, inside the Apple Pay wallet or the Samsung Pay is sitting bank credentials. So yeah, that, that, that could create a risk to the banking industry, but I think it's, I think it's kind of, yeah, it's overblown. Um, and this is not being in any way dismissive about, that's why I spent a lot of time talking about you know, how advanced some of the work Nigeria, you know, Nigerian central authorities like NIBS and CBN. So again, uh, PBOC have been years ahead of the US when it comes to this topic. Um, Chinese digital payments, micropayments uh, have been years ahead of the US and, and we've all experienced it, right? Visiting China for the last five, six years, at least before COVID, uh, we've all experienced it ourselves. Uh, the, 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 it's a bit like seeing it kind of reminds me, it's kind of money version of when I first went to Tokyo in the 1990s. And I was like, wow, London and New York look so old fashioned now. And then you roll that forward another 10 years and you land in Pudong and you go, whoa, this is like the future, you know, Shanghai, Pudong. And money was like that. You know, the physical infrastructure was re reflected the digital infrastructure. But just because something works there doesn't mean we have to spend, take it global. So yeah. Let's sound agnostic on CBDCs. Sorry, that was a big rant about CBDCs. I'm blaming yeah. you for taking me down that rabbit hole. It, it's you can edit that down. That was a way too long a rant about CBDCs. Actually, that was the edited highlights. I can rant for about two hours on CBDCs. Just on CBDC, but I think we'll have another guest on here so you guys can dig it out. That would be really fun to do. Um, <laughs> But let's take you to another thing that you guys wrote about um, with yeah. some eye-popping dollar signs next to it. I remember reading it. I'm like, wow, wait a minute. Uh, this is interesting. And that is one of the latest buzzwords for the moment, the metaverse. Um, <laughs> now that we had um, your view on CBDC uh, and digital wallet, which I think is a, is a fascinating one, Let's talk about the metaverse for a sec. What yeah. is the metaverse in your view? I know that is not what we see right now. We're not even close to that. Um, but more curiously, where do you see the role of metaverse in our future society? And where does banking fit? Why does Citibank wrote about it? First of all, why did you write about that? That was really curious report. Um, so my, my team is called the future of finance and digital. And one of our roles is to support the senior management and executives within the city. Most of our role is to provide advice and content analysis for our clients. And those clients could be central banks or finance ministries looking at CBDCs, for example, or they could be blue chip companies. Um, you know, let's not name names, but say the big luxury goods companies in Paris and Milan or just branded goods companies in the US or Europe or in Asia, looking um, at how do they build their business going forward. And so where our job is to think of what's coming down the pipe, look over the horizon, 
what's going to happen maybe in three years' time, in five years' time, that businesses need to start preparing for in 2023. Because by 2025, if you're not doing that, you're going to be behind the curve. And by, say, 2027, 29, it's table stakes. Um, as you guys say in the US, it's just like you have to do it. Um, but you can definitely not do it in 22, 23 and get away with it. Because the stuff that happens in 2022, 23, that's what your regular business executives are looking at. And we have, like, and all big banks literally got hundreds of thousands of people working on what's happening this quarter or what's happening this year. So our license is to roam beyond the horizon. And as part of the kind of wandering around, looking at blockchains and cryptos, we began to meet people and talk to people who are working on this thing called the open metaverse. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. And we sort of dug into that topic maybe a year and a half, two years ago. Um, anyway, let's define the terms. So metaverse is 3D internet. It's immersive, it's persistent, it's visual. It's basically, you know, think about the history of the internet. We went from the internet uh, basically being an academic or government network where you exchange information, text-based information, through massive mainframe computers to the consumer internet, desktop, well, actually the thing I'm talking on to, desktop and then laptop through the mid 1990s onwards, then apps and mobile phones. And we're kind of in that, particularly outside the US, but even in the US, but particularly outside the US, in India and China and the Middle East, we're in an apps and mobile phone internet. That's kind of, you know, most of the internet, that's why TikTok's so big and that's why, you know, um, you know, it's, it's an apps and mobile phone internet. What we're arguing, not just us, what a lot of people are arguing is um, the next generation of the internet isn't just us all staring at these small tablets or devices, these mini computers in our, in our hand, the mobile phone. The next generation of the internet is immersive. So no, it could just be this phone, but with AR glasses connected to the phone and earpieces. Now, AR, so augmented reality glasses. Now, what does give you a real use case, a practical use case? You're visiting a new city. Or getting back to an old city. I recently spoke at a conference in Rome, um, and I landed just before midnight, and it's Rome, and it was June or something. It was beautiful, and I was like, I'm on my own. I don't want to wake anyone up because my colleagues are asleep. My friends are asleep, but I'm in Rome. I'm going to go for a walk. And I walked around central Rome, trying to avoid the American other tourists, you know. And I look at all these beautiful buildings, going, what is that? What is that? And I'm basically Googling on my phone. And I'm trying to match up what I'm looking at on my phone. And if I had AR, I'd be walking. And I would have walked through central Rome, and it would have been like one of the best art history professors or cultural historians studying or living in Rome was walking with me. I could have had them walking, could have had her, him walking with me because I'd be able to listen to their commentary through my AR glasses, analyze what I was looking at through my phone, that would be my compute. So I'd have a full visual experience. Where I'm going around Asia, I leave, I leave central Hong Kong or downtown Shanghai. And guess what? No one understands me, right? 
I had this problem in even pre-COVID in Hangzhou. It's like, ah, I don't speak any can't understand my English. And they can't use my credit card. They don't accept my credit cards either, so I'm, I'm stuck. Uh, luckily, Alibaba had given me a translator. <laughs> but imagine if um, I had, you know, wandering anywhere in Asia outside the center of big cities for tourism. This could be huge. I could actually, I wouldn't need some, you know, low quality, you know, tour guide telling me something about this temple that I'm looking at which is patently something they've just wrote, learned from some Wikipedia site, I could actually have a proper expert showing me around as I'm going around wherever it is, the Taj Mahal or Phnom Penh or whatever. So I think tourism, any kind of social interaction, um, like we're doing this on Zoom and this is better than doing a video audio conference, like just a teleconference. If we could do that in the metaverse, it would feel like, you know, you guys were like, Actually, I don't know where you're zooming in from today, but uh, or WebExing in from, that's a word. But it would feel like you were on the other side of the table. And you know the intimacy and the closeness and the relationship you have when people are just sitting around a coffee table chatting. Now, this is, this is pretty good compared to a teleconference, but that closeness, so that, that would be social. And we could use that in enterprise as well for meetings, for, um, for sales, for transactions. So for me, when I think about the metaverse, it's AR, it's VR, it's 3D on existing devices, and it's just the next generation of the internet. Now, what does money look like in that world? Now, who, who are we gonna access the metaverse via? We're probably gonna, whatever the phone you have, whether it's an Apple or a Samsung, whoever it is, they're gonna be the gateway or the portal. We'll be accessing the metaverse through them. There'll be many metaverses. Hopefully they'll be interconnected and they'll be somewhat interoperable. But initially it'll be a web two metaverse. Uh, there'll be a risk of the usual walled gardens of the web two. And of course, these companies aren't stupid. They're, um, they're gonna basically lobby lobbyists. Uh, sorry, they'll lobby policymakers. Their lobbyists will go into action saying, hey, we're not gonna be walled gardens. We're gonna be interoperable. Um, but effectively, the gateway in, the portal, the um, whatever device we use, that access device, they'll have a huge amount of power. Um, and they'll know. And so money, um, if I'm accessing the metaverse, uh, i.e. the internet, through my Apple devices, um, Apple will, unless forced to by regulators, push us into using or nudge us, nudge us into using their wallet. That Apple wallet I talked about before in the physical world, we'll be doing that in the digital world as well. And one of the key things about the metaverse is that this is terrible. You, you probably, you, you guys have probably heard this: this consumer retail consulting term, uh, digital. Um, and for me, the metaverse isn't just purely digital; it's digital because I'll be, you know, I could be in Dubai Mall, and they don't have. I normally wear blues anyway, so it's not like I'm looking for many different colors but they don't have that particular navy blue polo shirt or light blue um, button-down shirt that I want. Through my AR glasses, I would say, ah, that's what I look like in, in that other color or whatever it is. So a shopping, shopping's gonna be huge. Um, I think it's already taken off in parts of East Asia. Um, and then you just pay, whether you're physically in the store or whether you're virtually in the store from your house, you just pay via your device could be the phone, it could be your glasses, it could be your headset, 
And initially, the payment uh, through the digital wallet will be linked to existing payment credentials. It'll be the existing rails. But as other parts of the metaverse grow, like gaming in particular, you'll be seeing microtransactions um, and tokens beginning to move around. So if you've got kids and you're listening to this, you'll be aware of this trend. I don't need to explain this trend. It's, I mean, I don't know the age group is 8 to 12 or something or 8 to 15, where they would rather have a digital good rather than a physical good. And we all like digital goods, right? All of us, right? Even us almost boomers. But um, but for the eight-year-olds, the 12-year-olds, there's a clear preference, clear preference for digital goods. Um, like, you know, when my eight-year-old um, does something that he doesn't like doing to give him a reward, he wants an in-app purchase, right? He wants, well, in there's inflation now, right? It's persistent. It's not transitory. So he wants two in-app purchases. Uh, so they're used to this kind of world of, um, you know, in-app purchases where digital assets are value. They're also used to a world where they collect digital tokens and they trade digital tokens, right? That is made up money in Roblox and Minecraft and other games. But those made up monies are locked inside the game. The future is that the made up monies won't be made up monies. There'll be tokens issued by um, maybe banks. Maybe the banks come together to issue some, you know, like a bank issued stable coin. The banking industry comes together. You know, banknotes have worked for years. In fact, still are in, as you know, in Hong Kong, in Scotland, in Northern Ireland, banknotes are issued by commercial banks. Um, in the US, until when the Fed turned up in the early 20th century, banknotes used to be issued by commercial banks. Um, so the idea of the banks getting together and issuing stable coins isn't a bonkers idea. It's uh, for much of banking history, banks issued notes. Um, so you can have stable coins, you can have the aforementioned CBDCs, or you can have tokens issued by maybe technology companies if they get their lobbying right this time. <laughs> or it's maybe even cryptocurrencies. Um, so there'll be tokens initially in games, but then they'll spill over outside games into all kinds of microtransactions. So the wallet's still going to be the key. And then if you're existing TradFi, be it a bank or whoever, you'll be like, do I control the wallet? Who controls? It's like today it'd be like, who controls checkout, right? It'd be the same question. Who it's like an omni-checkout. Who controls this? Because you won't go in and do the check. You'll do double click here or with your device or maybe even just blink your eye or whatever. Uh, and it's going to be embedded. It's like the ultimate, if you talk about embedded finance, you know, the metaverse is going to be the ultimate embedded finance. We are opening up another can of worms journey. Um, and I, I think we can, we can keep going and going. I think we need to do a round two of this, but um, this is, this is fascinating. I think we got, we got a lot of interesting tidbits and insights and uh, some fairly controversial statement, my essay. Um, that didn't sound controversial, but I think we're going to stir up a, a storm oh, of, oh, oh, oh. of exchange, which I'm looking forward to. But this is, this is fun. Um, thank you so much for joining us from Dubai. Um, I, I think that's part of the fun thing about doing the show. And uh, we look forward to seeing you in a few months, hopefully, in person, in real time. And uh, for the rest of our audience, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of One Vision. We will talk to you all next week.